Yeah, a lot of franchisees who are purchasing any of the, even their attorneys, don't do the diligence that they should. One of the easiest things to do is look at the franchisees who are identified in the FDD and give them a call and ask about the item 19. Or they may not tell you how much they're making, but they might tell you if the item 19 as represented is within their experience. They might tell you, no, I never made that kind of money, or yeah, I make a lot more. You don't know what they're going to tell you. But I've noticed that a lot of franchisees have not called franchisees who are listed in the FDD, and you're losing a valuable source of data. Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast. We are on a mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs just like you take action through franchise ownership, allowing you to obtain more financial freedom, time with family, and ultimately, a business that can run on its own without you. All right. Hello and welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast, where we talk about all things franchising, from how to buy a franchise, to how to run a franchise company, to how to find legal financing, whatever you need as a business owner. We also talk about leadership and just business overall. And I'm excited today to have our special guest, Craig Trachtenberg with Fox Rothschild. And a little bit about Craig. Craig is a resident in New York and Philadelphia offices of Fox Rothschild. He's the co-chair of Global Franchise Practice. He's been recognized by the Chambers USA, Franchising, Franchising Times Hall of Fame, Best Lawyers in America, Lawyer of the Year in New York and Philadelphia, three years, Super Lawyers, Blue Ribbon Panel, Pennsylvania, New York International, who in franchising. And I can add that I also am always seeing Craig as a facilitator in the IFA with the FBNs. So I'm ad-libbing a little bit. Craig likes long walks on the beach and pina coladas. Just kidding. I'm fine. You forgot to say that I rescue golden retrievers. <laughs> I was coming up on it, but you're right. Baby, permanent arbitrator, mediator, and rescuer of golden retrievers. Thank you, Dan. Well, welcome to the show. How have you been? I'm copacetic. Let's talk about litigation avoidance, one of our favorite (laughs) topics. (laughs) Well, Craig, I think before we get into all that fun stuff, which is no doubt going to be very, very interesting and useful for the audience, can you give us a little bit more of a dive into your background and how you got into the franchise law space and anything else you'd like to share? Sure. I wanted to be on Wall Street as a securities lawyer, but there was a recession when I graduated law school. And so I started working at a small law firm and found that franchising was very similar to the offer and sale of securities because it's the offer and sale of businesses. So my background easily translated into that. And as the industry grew, my involvement in the industry grew. When I was a young lawyer, I did little cases. When I got to be an older lawyer, I did bigger cases. So I represent franchisors basically from cradle to grave. I represent franchisees against bad franchisors that committed fraud. And I've represented franchisees who have taken over franchisors because the franchisor just, you know, couldn't do it either because of finances or they had some problem. So I've seen a lot and I'm happy to share a little bit. Well, I'm wondering where to even start there. I mean, for me, one of the things that I'm curious about is any kind of case studies and 
I guess, stories that can be shared. I mean, what are some of the most common, before we even get into that, what are some of the most common issues that you find in terms of franchisors v. franchisees? I mean, what are some of the most common that you find out there? Well, we don't have to limit it to franchisors versus franchisees. Let's just talk generally about business. You know, in franchising, we have franchise disclosure documents that are supposed to be in plain English. Wouldn't it be great if the franchise agreements were in plain English? Because that would eliminate a lot of the disputes. But lawyers and clients like to be specific, and it's hard to write a franchise agreement in plain English. Yet we try to do it when we can, and that avoids a lot of legal issues because if people don't know what they're getting into, either franchise or a franchisee, it creates problems. So the first thing is, when you have an FDD done, if you're a franchisor, have it read by someone else who's going to be critical and make sure that the franchise agreement, even though it's prepared by lawyers, makes sense, not only to you, but a third party who is not immersed in your business. and then. Follow the agreements. You know what they're supposed to say. You know what you're supposed to do, but you got to follow the agreements. And if you don't follow the agreements or you have a question about them, pick up the phone and call counsel. That gets you out of a lot of trouble. When the agreement doesn't cover the situation, try to negotiate, but try not to bully people. And Basically, before you sign any agreement of any consequence, whether it's with a supplier or somebody else, have counsel look at it sometimes. So let me tell you some horror stories that happen when these things don't occur. Let's do it. So you're a franchisor and you sell your business to private equity, and that's wonderful. And so you have some carry interest in the franchisor and private equity's in there. And a year into private equity owning the franchisor, what did they discover? They discovered that the franchise performance representation, the FPR, is manufactured. It's got errors in it, and they're intentional errors. And the errors were in there to sell franchises and to mark up the value of the franchise. So what's wrong? The private equity company had great lawyers who know that the seller defrauded them and they can go back against the seller. One problem, though, the 70 franchisees who are in the system are able to sue the private equity company and their individual officers and directors because the company was based in the state of Washington, which has a statute that allows you to reach the directors and the officers. And so while private equity did nothing, they were personally liable for all of the fraud claims. So when you have that situation, the way that one was resolved is not by trying all the fraud claims, but by having private equity sell the company to the franchisees. And because the company was losing money, the private equity people actually paid the franchisees to cover their expenses to buy the company. And then the franchisees owned the company. So what's the lesson here? Number one, you can't judge a book by its cover. You have to dig and make sure that you do your diligence before you buy a company. And number two, make sure you understand the ramifications of the state law that applies to your situation. If that franchisor had been based in, let's say, New York, 
or another registration state that didn't have personal liability for franchise fraud, the private equity company would still be operating this company. They wouldn't have had personal exposure, but they don't need the headline risk. They don't need the personal exposure. They don't need to give their franchisees a big stick. So where you form your company and the law that applies, all that stuff is legal stuff. And they should be consulting lawyers on that stuff and making decisions, perhaps, of what the lawyers say. Many times I've represent, I've asked franchisors to move their place of business so they're not subject to some of the franchise statutes. So that's just one example of knowing what you're buying, understanding the agreements you're buying, and understanding the legal ramifications of having your business in a particular state and what franchise law applies. How's that for a beginning? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think that there's a big distinction between working with an attorney before you sign something and then after you sign something, understanding what you signed sometimes is important, you know, because each little area of an agreement is so unique to itself. It's interesting. So as an individual too, if you bought a small franchise system and there was fraud from the franchisor, the identification doesn't stop at the franchisor. You could get on the hook for that, even though you, all you did was buy that business too. You were defrauded as well. Sometimes it depends on the structure of the purchase and it depends on the state law that applies. So you have to look at both things if you're a buyer. And Sometimes there's nothing you can do because the franchise agreements already have baked in that Washington law or Oregon law applies and they have personal liability for the individuals who run the franchise company who bought into it. So sometimes there's nothing you can do and you just have to assess that risk. So maybe if they understood that risk, they would have looked at the FPRs very closely. They would have asked for the documentation of the FPRs just like you can, you know, if you're buying a franchise and not a franchise system. And that's where the attorneys come in because they can identify those risks. Some of the other risk areas, I mean, avoiding litigation is really a key management strategy. And there's issues where it comes up in franchising and all businesses. You know that there's HR issues. And with HR issues, that's a matter of training. You make sure that your people are trained to avoid the HR issues because they're recurrent. And make sure your contracts have been reviewed by an attorney so you know that they understand what's going on. But there are other recurrent issues. You got real estate issues. You know, when you're dealing with real estate issues, you should have the contracts reviewed by an attorney. You should get probably negotiate. If you have multiple real estate leasing issues, you should probably have attorneys on board who will give you some sort of pipeline pricing for reviewing your real estate agreements. And also, if you have recurrent labor issues, you probably should have attorneys who do that frequently and can give you some sort of pricing based on it. But avoiding litigation and when to pick up the phone, when you have a problem, the first thing is react promptly to prevent the issues from getting out of control. You don't need headline risk. You don't need to see it in the papers. And the way you get it in the papers is that you treat people unfairly. You should treat the other side of the dispute in good faith and try to have a positive relationship to the extent it's possible. Treat them with respect. 
candor and trust, even if they're aggressive. And while you're trying to avoid the litigation, you should be solution-oriented and not focus on mistakes or personal attacks. There are some cases that require you to go to the mat in litigation, intellectual property cases, cases that are about the company issues, cases which affect the company. You have to go to the mat sometimes. But in the other cases, you got to try not to get into scare tactics, including the threat of litigation or harassment, because it just drives the other side to escalate the issue. Try always to de-escalate the issue. And to do that, you have to listen carefully, you have to try to understand, and you have to communicate timely. Timely not only to the other side, but also to your subordinates and your superiors. Be mindful that email is a terrible way to communicate. You can't see what somebody's saying. On a podcast, you can see what people are trying to say, but it's, email is often misunderstood. Along with that is avoid oral agreements. You really want to have everything documented. And if you document your transactions with people, you'll avoid a lot of disputes. In other words, timely meaning if you're, you know, in between working through something, getting back to the opponent or a person on the other side that, you know, you're working through it and just getting back to their questions quickly, I assume is what you mean. Yeah, I'll give you an example. It happened last night. I have a restaurant licensing deal in Malaysia, of all places. And the deal was substantially negotiated in December of 2021. So the owner of the real estate, which happens to be a casino, didn't get back to us until September with changes. Well, because my people were away in September, and there's holidays and all kinds of stuff, we didn't get back to the Malaysia people until October. Now it's October and the restaurant's supposed to open in November and there's still issues to be resolved. And while these are not contentious and will not erupt into litigation, people lose trust if you don't keep the transaction going and the momentum. It's the same in negotiation. You got to be there. They have to know you're listening, that it's important. And if you can't get back to them, tell them when you're going to get back to them or why you can't get back to them. But going silent is not a way to de-escalate problems. It's a way to escalate problems. Yeah, I think about if someone in any client service role, if you reach out and you're angry about something to a company and they say, hey, we hear you, we're going to work on that. And they don't have the answer. You still feel like, all right, well, it's in motion. And maybe they call you a day later, hey, it's not resolved yet, but here's what's going on. You're right. It de-escalates and not escalates. You know, Craig, it's funny. I wish there was a way that when someone has all these agreements, what I found in my life is I understand the agreement when I talk to an attorney and there's all these different moving parts and then life gets busy. I try to take notes, but then you almost can forget, oh, what was it again that this agreement here in this area says? You know, you almost wish there was a layman's terms creation of any agreement that's given back to you that you can understand it and reference back because I don't know, but for me, I've got all kinds of agreements that I have to think about and Sometimes it's easy to forget what's in each one. Well, you know, for franchise companies, they often have abstracts of leases. They tell you the start date, the end date, what the unusual terms are, because everybody knows what the landlord-tenant arrangement should be. But there may be peculiarities to a particular site. You might have to do 
parking striping every year or the utilities are allocated in a different way. So with leases, it's not unusual to do abstracts. Maybe with franchise agreements, it's a good idea to do abstracts as well. And some franchisors actually do abstracts, not only when they start, when they end, and a little bit about the franchisee, but other issues which may be brand specific. And as the brand matures, the franchise agreement changes. So in the early franchise agreements, maybe McBurgers didn't sell chicken. And then the later franchise agreements, McBurgers not only sells fried chicken, but also requires the franchisee to spend another $150,000 on updating chicken equipment, which they don't have in the earlier franchise agreements. That's the kind of stuff where you may want to have abstracts of your franchise agreement so you know which one you know applies to what. On your vendor agreements or things like that, yeah, maybe they could be summarized. So not only you who negotiated, but other people looking at it can know, you know, here's the important points, things you have to know going forward. Just little reminders. If you're enjoying this episode, please click the subscribe button. And make sure to connect with the Franchise Founders Podcast on LinkedIn. One thing I wanted to go back to one of the first things that we were talking about regarding financial performance representation. So that's obviously the section item 19 of the FDD. And what I'm curious about, because obviously sometimes there's this disconnect between the franchisor and the franchisee. And I believe that personally, most of the time they're trying to operate in good faith. They're trying to have a mutually beneficial relationship, but sometimes there are bad actors, obviously. So I guess it's a two-parter question here. I mean, how often do franchisors kind of cook the books, at least as far as the financial performance representation is concerned. And then as a potential franchisee, what can they do to mitigate that risk? Or are there any red flags they should be aware of when it comes to the item 19 and seeing if it's legit or not? Franchisors do not generally falsify the item 19. It's a clear act of fraud. Mm -hmm. They may cut the information in a particular way that you're not seeing the whole system and you have to be aware of that. They may only show units been operating for two years and they'll say that because there's a ramp up and you have to understand the ramp up. And also you have to look at the additional funds portion of item seven of the franchise agreement, which sort of is a backdoor to working capital requirements by the franchisor. More often than not, it's item seven, which understates the expenses rather than item 19, which inflates the revenues. Mm. So I think you have to scrutinize item 19. What is it really saying? Is it a good snapshot of the entire system? Is it only using affiliates of the franchisors that have had 10 years of ramp up time? We know that if the item 19 is falsified, and you can look for a substantiation of it before you buy your franchise, that it's a fraud case. And you know, you're probably not going to see that. Franchisors generally are not stupid enough to do that. <laughs> and their lawyers don't want to get involved with it. So, you know, they're going to be asking some hard questions. But I would compare this item 19 with the item seven. And I would do your accounting based on the startup expenses in item seven against the item 19 issues and see how 
long it's going to ramp up your franchise based on item 19. And I think that's the best way to proceed. I like when franchisors give item 19 representations because when they don't, they seem to embellish the system and there's no support for it. It's just free hanging. And that's where a lot of franchisors get in trouble. Also, if franchisors don't have an item 19, it may hide something that's bad about the franchisor. It may just be an emergent company, but if it's not an emergent company and they have an, you know 10 or more franchises, I would expect an item 19. Yeah, I'm in that camp too. I think that for the most part, sometimes I think when there's a flat royalty, you can make the case for maybe not having an item 19, but I think generally speaking, it's just good for everybody. And if you're going to invest all this money and in many cases, your life savings, I think it's good to at least have a general idea of how much money you could potentially make, or at least as far as what revenue you could produce. Yeah, a lot of franchisees who are purchasing any of the, even their attorneys, don't do the diligence that they should. One of the easiest things to do is look at the franchisees who are identified in the FDD and give them a call and ask about the item 19. Or they may not tell you how much they're making, but they might tell you if the item 19 as represented is within their experience. They might tell you, no, I never made that kind of money. Or yeah, I make a lot more. (laughs) You don't know what they're going to tell you. But I've noticed that a lot of franchisees have not called franchisees who are listed in the FDD, and you're losing a valuable source of data. Absolutely. That's critical, talking to the franchisees. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily call the ones only in your neighborhood, because they may not want to talk to you. They may not want competition, but I'd call them all over the country just to get a sense of how it plays in Peoria and how it plays in LA and how it plays in Kansas City and how it plays in Chicago. Exactly. You're getting a good data set. You're seeing exactly how this performs in different markets. And more data is always good, generally speaking, I think. So it's good to have that. And validation is obviously critical. Right. I guess from the franchisee standpoint as well, obviously it's not just the franchisees getting mad at franchisors and sometimes that going to litigation, but sometimes it's the reverse where the franchisee isn't upholding their end of the bargain and the franchisor needs to go after them for lack of a better term. But what are some of the most common reasons for that and how is that typically handled? All right. You have the economic defaults. I'll call them hard defaults because there's a contractual provision you will pay within 10 days and you don't do that. And then there's the soft defaults where the franchisee is not investing enough resources in the business. In both cases, you have to make the legal case, the business case and the legal case for enforcement of the franchise agreement. Sometimes the franchise agreement sort of gives you two options. You send them a notice of default and you terminate their franchise. But that's not really where you want to be if you're running a franchise system. What you want to do is preserve the relationship and get them to a better place. So you have to examine you know, what your business records show. What are they doing wrong? If they're not paying their royalties, you have to figure out why. Is it poor sales? Is it poor management? Because the answers for those are two different answers. If it's they're making the money, but they won't pay you, maybe termination is the better idea, but it also may be better if you were able to steer that franchisee to sell to someone else. And there's a lot of techniques in doing that, legal techniques. 
you could send the franchisee a notice of default. You can tell them that we know you can't cure this default, but we'll give you a lifeline agreement that will allow you to catch up. And if you don't catch up, either the termination could be enforced at that time, or if you're a franchisor, you may want to take an option on buying their business. So let's say they have a business that you think could be sold for $200,000 or $2 million. On this lifeline agreement, maybe you have the option after six months to buy their business for $150,000 or $1.5 million. That gives them an incentive to sell it and list it with a broker. And you should do one of these lifeline agreements, which not only requires them to give you a release today so they don't have any defenses, but also requires them to list with a broker today so that you know that they're totally into selling the business and getting out because you're trying to help them. So that's one way to deal with the sticky situation. But you can't get there unless your internal documents have you doing this right. You have to go in there, you have to make the visits, you have to ask the questions, you have to document it. I will, one large burger chain had significant franchisee defaults from a network of a franchisee and put in a team to retrain their people for two weeks, a team of two franchisor people to retrain a large burger network system. And after that, only after that, did the franchisor start the default protocol. And the franchisor was able to force a sale. And it worked out for everybody because the franchisee didn't know what they had and got a lot more money for their business than they thought it was worth. The franchisor knew what it was worth, but it was underperforming. So the franchisor got, let's say, a $6 million network that could easily be improved to a $10 million network and steered it to a franchisee who could do it. So it's a win-win. The franchisee bought it for less than it was worth. The old franchisee got more than it was worth. And the franchisor increased its brand equity because it got the network working the way it should be. But all that starts with uh, certain protocols of documenting everything, uh, having a legal strategy that looks at the end and makes it to the goal line. That's defined by the franchisor and the franchisor able to nourish the system so they have a franchisee who could take over and do a better job. I love that. I love what you're saying because it sounds like what you're saying is it's better to try to find a mutually beneficial win-win relationship versus immediately jump down each other's throats and form this adversarial relationship where it's, hey, like let's take a step back. Let's try to figure out what the underlying root cause is and then build a solution around that. And if we can't, then yes, we can go the legal route to try to resolve it. But hopefully, even if we go that route, we can do it amicably where everyone is getting what they want, or at least, you know, a good chunk of what it is that they want. Right. But you have to define your values. You can't do that every time. Mm. So if you have a childhood education system, you can't allow the franchisee not to have the fire alarms tested <laughs> or to have someone who molests children in their network and not be able to root them out or root them out immediately. Or they're creating headline problems because they're discriminating against a protected class. Those things, you got to come down hard because it's either you or them. You got to cut them off. 
you know, underreporting. Once the franchisee underreports, there's a lot of systems who say, I caught you. Yeah, I can't trust you. You got to get out. You know, I don't have to share it with the IRS or whomever, but you got to get out. And if you don't, then I'm going public with it. So all those options are on the table, but the franchisor has to define the values and decide which things are non-negotiable, which require the exit of the franchisee. And then you work on a soft landing for the franchisee, even in the worst cases. That's what keeps you out of the newspaper. I like that you touched on that because I think oftentimes potential franchise buyers, when the first time they ever look at an FDD, they think, wow, or if they have a lawyer take a look at it, especially if it's their sister's uncles, cousins, whatever, right? Like who's taking a look at Some of those are good lawyers, you know, just because they're related right. doesn't mean they aren't good lawyers. Fair enough, but they're not necessarily franchise experts, right? And if you haven't looked at an FDD before, you probably will take a step back and realize, wow, this seems pretty one-sided, but you just brought up plenty of examples as to why the franchisor needs to structure the document that way. That way they can protect not only themselves, but also the other franchisees. Every franchisor has their name on the front of that building. It's their reputation that's at risk. And when you go into court, that's the first thing you say to the judge. It's my name on the outside of this. And I got to make sure that it respects my values. And brand equity is the strongest argument other than safety. So in terms of termination cases or litigation, if you have a safety issue, or a discrimination issue, that's number one. Number two is brand equity. What are they doing to my reputation? How can I sell another franchise in this area based on what they're doing to me? And number three is they're not living up to their agreement, the words of their agreement. And then the other, the franchisee or somebody else says, yeah, but you're substituting reality for the words of the agreement. The words say you'll pay me timely, but we're in COVID. You know, let's do something about that. Well, if you're not paying the money during COVID, all right, maybe you get a second chance. You get a second bite at the apple. But if you're discriminating during COVID or you're not complying with safety issues, COVID's not going to save you. There's no excuse for that. And that's why franchisors have to really have their values in place and know what they're doing. No pussyfooting about enforcement when the brand is at risk. Right. So there's times to be lenient. There's times that where you really got to come down And a lot of it, it sounds like you're saying, is just depending on what your values are and when it's clear cut that this is a no-go, we got to protect the brand versus, hey, COVID happened. It's like, yeah, maybe your obligations as a franchisee aren't completely fulfilled, but we're going to give you some lenience because we understand that these are unprecedented times and we're wanting to work with you. And we know that this is through no fault of your own. Right. And some systems, some systems build in penalties. Like if you have operational defaults, you have to go to what I refer to as reform school. You have to send people back to school and you have to pay for it. You know, and these are documented operational issues. Other systems have, you know, penalty payments if you don't make your payments in time or things like that. And it all depends on the system. It shouldn't be punitive. It should be remedial because one day you have to explain this to a judge and it looks like if you're overreaching, the judge will think that you're oppressive. What you want to convince them is that you've done everything, you've documented everything, you've given them every opportunity, and now they're continuing to hurt you. That's when you have power in the litigation. That makes sense. So when does it make sense, in terms of your practice, when does it make sense for a franchisor or franchisee to engage with you and to start having a conversation? When do they need Craig Trackenberg? 
Well, it depends. If we're talking about litigation, you can't go on with the relationship the way it is. It doesn't have to be terminal. It could be quick advice. My franchisor is not doing this. What are my options? And that happens a lot. Some franchise agreements have franchisor cure periods. So the franchisee can send a letter saying, you're not performing. And under my franchise agreement, you get 30 days to do it. That provision may not have any teeth, but it starts the default provisions. Maybe you need mediation with the franchisor. Probably better communication. And where attorneys help is that they know what's going on in the franchise world. They know how other franchisors deal with such issues. And if this franchisor isn't living up to being a good franchisor, the franchisee attorney can get through to them. But remember that for the most part, the law does not recognize franchisor malpractice. If the franchisor lives up to the contract, but just barely, there's nothing that the franchisee can basically do with that. But if the franchisor is hurting the franchisee that deprives the franchisee of what the franchisee contracted to do, then that's a breach of contract. And that's a fine line. But a good attorney will be able to cross that line when the evidence supports it. And then you have some power in a negotiation once you've shown that the franchise agreement, the literal words of the franchise agreement are being violated. Absolutely. So all of this has been fantastic. I think incredibly valuable. If you were to sum up everything we've talked about so far, advice for franchisees, franchisors, both, I mean, how would you sum it up and what kind of parting wisdom would you give everyone? Well, I think it's important to avoid litigation and disputes by open and clear, effective communication, knowing what your values are, knowing what you're going to do and what you're not going to do, and being straightforward and direct. This is our expectation. This is what you should do. And not making threats. If you exhaust that nine times out of 10, you'll get what you want. If you can't get what you want, then you have a litigation option. But there's other options. There's mediation. There's other organized conferences. You can file an arbitration if you have an arbitration clause, which may be binding or not binding, depending on how your franchise agreement's written. But litigation usually is the last resort. And sometimes you have to do it to get somebody's attention. And you can mediate once you're in the litigation. You can always resolve it. But sometimes once you throw down that litigation, it's hard to get the parties back to the table. Remember also that most litigations, I don't want to give a percentage, but most litigations resolve with settlement. So there's always a chance to settle cases, and that's good business. You make the deal, you know, if you go to litigation, somebody wins, somebody loses if it goes to verdict. But with settlements, you make the deal that you can live with. I love it. Well, makes sense. Well, Craig, thanks so much for coming on. I know that this was really valuable just for my own knowledge. I learned a lot here today, and I'm sure that our audience did too. So thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, thanks everyone again for tuning in to another episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to share the podcast, leave us an honest review, subscribe, all that good stuff, and then we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. If you want our help with anything from buying a franchise to franchising your business to anything in between, shoot us an email at franchisefounders at gmail.com.